loud. All right. As Josh Forbear mentioned, I am not Merrick. Uh, Merrick is not here tonight. I know you're like, of course you're not Merrick. You're so much more handsome, rugged. He can grow a better beard. I will give him that. But that's all he has on me. I can play much better basketball than he can. You make sure you tell him that. Yeah, so I'll tell you what Merrick did. This joker shoots me a text on Monday, and he says, Hey, man, I'm just kind of covering all my bases. Uh, I've got some stomach issues. Just can you be prepared to preach on Wednesday night? And I'm thinking, I text him back, sure, yeah, definitely. And in the back of my head, I'm like, man, Merrick, Merrick will be fine. He's got a stomach bug. Those normally last a day. And I'm just like, this dude, by the end of the day, he'll be fine. Merrick's like hardcore about like he's, Merrick gets to preach. Merrick's going to preach, and he's going to knock it out. So I'm thinking in the back of my head, there is not a single way that I am preaching at First College tonight. And I think he, like, sensed my aloofness and my, like, unbelieving spirit of what? That is awesome. About to bring the rain tonight. Um, and he sensed my unbelieving spirit. Yeah, we're going to move on in and close that door. Is anybody's windows down? That's the question. We're good. All right. Back to my great story. I'm a big storyteller. All right. So he, ten- he like, I guess he sends my aloofness to his disease. And he says, oh, by the way, I'll like, if I were you, I'd be really ready to preach. I think I have salmonella. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this went from zero to 100, like, real quick. So this man's telling me I've got salmonella. And I'm like, oh, all right, what do you want me to talk about? Like, how do you, how do you want me to take it? Continue on your series? He says, yeah, sure, go on. So I'm like, all right. And he says, I've got a great commentary for you. Swing by my house. And I'm thinking, salmonella, not contagious. He just ate like a bad burrito or something. So I'm like, yeah, I'll go over there. And I shoot him a text, say, all right, on my way. He says, text me whenever you get here. It takes me a long time to get to the door. I'm moving slow. And I'm like, is this dude on his deathbed? <laughs> like, I'm picturing knocking on the door, and Merrick's got his, like, fluids on the little cart, and he's got his IV in, and he opens the door for me, pale white. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I want to, like, go see this guy. I open the door, or I knock on the door, and his mom comes and answers the door. Like, he, he's so bad off, his mom is taking care of him. A grown man, his mother is taking care of him. And I'll tell you what, the whole family was down. Like, that mom, moms are the best. All we're going to talk about tonight is how great moms are. Um, so, like, I walk into the house, and she says, one second, let me go ask him. I don't see this dude. I hear his faint, wimpy voice in the back of the house, like, and I'm just like, I need to like tell Merrick sorry for whatever I've done to him in his life. I don't think I'm ever going to see this guy again. So I get this commentary and I leave the house and I'm like, well, Merrick, it was nice knowing you. I saw him today. He just had the stomach bug. So that man's just an exaggerator. But the bad thing is, is I went to his office and like that's where I studied. And I'm like, I went to the office of a man with like a terrible stomach bug, and I used a commentary of a man with a terrible stomach bug. So if I just sprint off stage, that's, we're good. The Lord is leading me to leave. Um, so my name is Braden. For those of you who don't know me, I am the middle school associate youth pastor here at first, and I also get the honor and privilege to run the coffee part of the depot. So I get to work with college students. I get to work with uh, baristas here. I am married. My beautiful wife is on the third row, third seat. She's great. Like any good pastor from the stage, I'm going to tell you she's so much better than me. I, you know, kicked, I'll kick my coverage. You know, she's way better. That's, I mean, preach, I know. 
So I am so excited to be here tonight. We're going to continue on in the series Gospel Worthy. And I know that though you may have the second up guy on the stage, you have the same great God who's going to be speaking his word. So you all bow your heads with me and we're going to pray real quick. I just ask that you take a minute and you ask the Lord to remove whatever distractions you have from your mind. Your anxieties with class, with home, family, relationships, friendships, just ask the Lord to wipe it from your slate. And that for these next few moments, you solely focus on the word that He has for you. Now I just ask that you do the same for me. That my anxieties from school, relationships, friendships, that they just are wiped clean. That the Lord whelms up inside of me and I speak His words and not my own. And for these next few moments, my sole purpose is to bring you God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity, Lord. I thank you that you are a great and mighty God who is in control. I thank you for these students and their willingness to be here tonight. I pray, Lord, that we have soft hearts, receptive ears, and responsive actions after this, Lord God. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name, amen. So as forementioned, we are continuing on the series Gospel Worthy. Last week, Merrick took a look, if you weren't here, we're doing our studies out of Philippians, and he took a look at how the Philippian church got started, and we look at Acts chapter 16. This week, we are jumping into the first chapter of Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1 tonight, if you want to flip there. And just kind of setting the scene, this is 10 years removed from whenever Paul got kicked from Philippi for making too much noise. So he's writing to a church that we see has grown, that has expanded greatly from the three converts that Paul had. They have committed themselves to the gospel. And they have, man, shone a light in the darkest of places. Philippi is the first place that we know that truly grabbed the gospel by the reins and it changed a metropolitan area. Philippi was a great and mighty city, and the Lord, through faithful servants of the gospel, man, he he began to change hearts, minds, he changed the city. See, that's what I feel like we tonight are going to look at. If we take hold of the gospel, if we live a gospel-worthy life, as Paul did, as the church of Philippi did, man, there's no telling what we cannot change. What impact that we cannot have. That commentary that Merrick gave me, I read through it. And I read this. And it convicted me so well. It's from a scholar, D.A. Carson. And he writes, I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I really get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly do not want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, but not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. 
I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself do not want to love those of different races. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. I read this and it blew my mind. How often do I look a person who man, claims to be a leader and I say, I just want enough of the Christianity of the gospel to make myself appealing but not to change my life. We're going to look and we're going to look in Philippians chapter 1 and we see what happens whenever the gospel becomes our focus. We see what happens whenever the gospel comes our fire and our spark inside of us. We see what happens whenever we ask for the whole amount of the gospel and not just $3. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to start off with this. What to me is evident in this is that Paul's focus on the gospel shapes his relationships with other believers. See, the gospel does amazing things in Paul's life. It saves him. It brings him to great. But whenever he has the true relationship, whenever he focuses on the gospel, it changes his world and it changes the way he interacts with the people around him. I think it does this in three ways. First off, it makes him thankful. Read with me in verse 3 and 4. It says this. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. See, Paul's writing to the church of Philippi. And he is saying, look guys, I left you 10 years ago. And you have done nothing but expanded the Lord's kingdom. See, he is thankful not just without aim. He's thankful for the joy and for the people themselves there. He looks at this people, he looks at this group, and he says, because of what the gospel has done in your life, you bring overwhelming joy. Paul writes this letter not from a couch, not from a beachfront property, not from the beautiful depot couch right there, the one with the big hole in it that kind of just really like cushions you. He writes it from a jail cell. He's chained to a Roman guard. He is literally in the darkest of darkness, in the worst possible place. Death is before him. And what he says is, I think of you guys, I think of what you are doing in, our, in your lives, what the gospel is doing through you, and <laughs> you bring me joy. You put a smile on my face. See, whenever Paul focuses on the gospel, his situations, they don't define him. The bad grades, the hard classes, the unfair teachers, that doesn't define him. The broken relationships, the family matters, that doesn't define him. He sees a God who is still in control. He sees that brothers and sisters in Christ chasing after him, expanding the gospel, and despite his darkness, joy overwhelms him. Joy is not an emotion for Paul. It is an attitude. He chooses it. 
man, in our lives, do we choose joy? We see that on the back of cars. We see that everywhere. And I feel like often so much, we choose joy whenever we're happy. That's not what joy is. When people look at us, are they, do they say that, man, that person is thankful in all circumstances? Thankfulness overwhelms from them. Or are we thankful one day a year whenever we eat turkey? A gospel-centered life, a gospel-worthy life, is one that is defined by thankfulness and joy. But he's not just thankful for the joy that they bring him. He's thankful for their fellowship and the confidence that they give him. Reading on in verse 5 and 6, it says this. He says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. He initially starts off and he says, I am joyful, I am thankful, I think of you and smile because of the partnership that we have in the gospel. Some of your Bible translations may translate this as fellowship. Do we honestly have fellowship with the brothers and sisters around us? I feel like in this Baptist world, so whenever I was a kid, we went to church fellowships, and I don't know about you, but church fellowships were just like pimento and cheese sandwiches. And I'm like, pimento and cheese is gross. Anybody that likes pimento and cheese is not a Christian because it's gross. Like, I still don't like pimento and cheese. Why not meat? Like, ham, that's good. Ham and cheese, good. Ham, cheese, and pimentos, bad. Like, what is wrong with you? But we have taken the fellowship, and we've made it into me and my good friend who's a Christian, we go get coffee. That's not what fellowship is. We take it as us as a group of believers sit here and hear the word of God. That is a great thing. That's not what fellowship is. See, fellowship is a business term. Fellowship is a term that he is enjoyed by them because he knows he has their partnership. He has their sacrifice. Fellowship is if me and you begin a business. We start a fishing business, me and Wesley. Wesley's a lot better fisherman than me. I don't know how to fish. But he stole my fishing rod, which I kind of, bitterness. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. We start a fishing business. We both sacrifice things. We both import money, time, resources, and we try as hard as we possibly can to make that fishing business excel. That is a fellowship. There's sacrifice there. This is what Paul's talking about. He's saying, I am joyful because of your partnership, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first days until now. He says, right whenever I came to you, right whenever you started grabbing hold of who Christ was and what he could do, you sacrificed everything for me. You sacrificed everything for him. See, think about this. Paul got ran out of the city because what he was doing was too dynamic for the law there. He stayed there about three days and the city got tired of him. They kicked him out. These people stayed in that war zone. They grabbed who God was and they said, this is our home. We cannot leave and we have to share the Lord with those around us. There was sacrifice on their parts. And we ask ourselves, what is fellowship? I get coffee with a good Christian friend, but is there a sacrifice? Do we have the same mission in mind? See, because where a church group comes into a fellowship is whenever we are striving towards a goal. 
I feel like so often we go on mission trips. I love mission trips. I went to a Puerto Rico one time, and my Puerto Rico experience was very different from everyone else's Puerto Rican experience. Mine was easy. We built houses, but apparently my guy who is like a boss, I can't remember his name, he only spoke Spanish, so we did not, I could speak like five words in Spanish, and most of them are like, I have to go to the bathroom. So we didn't, we didn't connect. We just connected with the Lord. Um, so he like apparently did all the work that we were supposed to do this week, the week before. We were literally out in the heat for one day, and he was like, hey, he talked to the translator, and he says, hey guys, we're kind of done here. So whenever we go to the, when everybody else goes to work on their house and sweat and build a home, we're going to go to my church and get ready for VBS. And I'm like, sweet, like let's do this. So we go to VBS, and we get ready. It turns out the guy accidentally like stabbed himself in the eye one night and he had to go to the hospital. I don't know. It's a big long story. (laughs) But I remember coming back and I was a youth intern at the time and I talked to students and they said, man, we got to talk to this person about Christ. We got to share the reason why we're here. We have a student in here. Her name's Kaylee. She is about to get married. Kaylee met a friend on this Puerto Rican trip that you still keep up with, right? Seven years. Seven years, she has met this friend. This friend and her both sacrificed something. Man, and there is a bond that is literally unbreakable. We ask ourselves, whenever we come home from camp, whenever we come home from mission trips, why don't I feel that burden? Why don't I have those knit friendships that we keep long distance for seven years? I think we have to ask ourselves, are we sacrificing here in this mission field? Are we creating fellowship not just with times where it's encouraged and it's harbored and it's grown, but in times where everyone around us may give a rip about what the Lord has? If we want to be a body of believers that strives forward, we sacrifice, we put in our own thing. But he not only says that, he's not happy just for their partnership, he's happy because of the confidence that he gets from them. He says a bold statement. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began the good work within you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, he's looked at these people. He looks at these people who are probably burdened and hurt. And he says, look, I know this for a fact. The Lord our God has not abandoned you. I left you because I got kicked out of the city. And I'm sure for the next 10 years were hard. But he says, we have a Lord that does not abandon I am sure of this. He who began that work 10 years ago, he is still there. He's still pushing you forward. He's still pulling you along. And he's promised that he will complete the work of the day of Christ. We look at people around us and we think, man, I feel so alone. College can be a time where loneliness is, man, just evident. You go to class, you go to work, you go to church, and you feel like there's all these people around me, but I'm sitting here by myself in a dark circle. See, I know that burden. I know that depression, but see what the Lord has promised us. If you begin a good work with Him, He is faithful to complete it. You are not alone. Whenever the gospel takes hold of our lives, whenever the gospel takes hold of this group's lives, we together bring each other joy. We together bring each other, man, satisfaction, thankfulness. 
a gospel-centered life, man, it makes thankfulness and joy overwhelm from us. But it also does this. The the gospel in Paul's life, man, it's evident through his affection for the church of Philippi. Read with me in verses 7 and 8. It says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God as my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. We see here Paul loves these people. Love is evident in his life. He looks for them and he says, man, I think of you and I'm joyful. I think of you and I'm thankful. But he also says, man, I hold you in my heart. And I have the affection. I have the same affection with you as, I, as Christ Jesus. I mentioned I was married, and Emily is my beautiful, lovely wife. We got to go to this thing called marriage counseling. Marriage counseling is kind of awkward. I'm not going to lie. The first day, you're like, mm, this is weird. I don't like talking about this. How did you meet? Do you love each other? Well, we're here, so I'm going to say yes. Um, and then they're like, what's the biggest you know, problem? And I'm like, we don't really know you that well, so this is weird. But we're like, hey, we've, I mean, because I'll tell you right now, marriage counseling, forgot the word. Marriage counseling is like only really worth it is if you like go all out. So we made the like idea, hey, we're going to get much out of this as we put into it. So we're like, let's lay it out there. Let's talk to Brandon was our counselor's name and let's get it done. I remember the first day I was like dripping sweat. It was hot in that room and I was so nervous. I don't know why I was nervous, but like I'd never been to counseling before. So I was like, I don't know if I'm about to like ball down, break down crying. Um, I'm not a crier, I'm not a big emotion guy, and I'm like, this is going to be terrible. And he throws up a good softball question, and I'm like, bang, knock it out of the park. And he says, Braden, do you love Emily? Yes, bang, we're good. Sweat went away, and I was like, let's freaking go. He says, how should you love Emily? And I'm like, another softball question. He says, I should love Emily, I say, he says, I say. (laughs) I say, I should love Emily. Emily, as Christ loved the church. And he was like, man, yeah, you're right. All right, counseling's over. Let's get out of here. And I was like, deuces, let's do this. Emily was like, he said, Emily, you have to stay. You don't, you got to understand the submittal part. But that's a whole different story. We're still working on it. Um, It's in every counseling story. It's in every sermon about marriage. You should love your wife, your spouse, as Christ loved the church. What does that look like? It says, you should love your spouse, your wife, as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself up for her. This is what Paul is telling these people. He says, you are burdened. Yes, I know. You are in a darkness. Yes, I know. But I love you with that affection of Christ. He's looking at them like he's the, they're his wife. He says, I would give myself up for you. He says, my love overwhelms for me, and you are so much greater than I. Love is evident here because of the gospel. He sees their witness, he sees their testimony, he sees Christ in their life, and his love, it pours out of him for them. Is love something that is evident in our life? Whenever people see us, do they say, man, that is a person who I know would give himself up for me. Are the friends around us, do they think they can come to us and they can talk to us about, man, hard times? And he, 
you're there to encourage. You're there to push them forward. These people went through terribleness. But Paul says, look, you're going to be completed. This good work is going to do it. Christ has not left you. He says, I hold you in my heart, for you too are partakers of grace. He says, I know some of you guys' terrible past. Look at mine. We're all in this grace together. We can all move forward. This grace can also be translated as sacrifice. We've all left hard things behind. We've all broken relationships, broken friendships that we had to put behind us in order for the Lord to go in front of us. And Paul is letting his love for these people overwhelm, overflow, and pour out on this group. How often do I let that happen? How often does me, Braden, a man who works at a church, who leads a group of people, who is married to the best woman in the world, how often do I say, man, my love is for me? My life is for me. Everything that I've gained is for me. How often do I put a lid on what the Lord has done in my life? That's not what Paul is doing here. Affection pours from him. Encouragement pours from him. Love pours from him. If I were to live my life worthy of the gospel, I should... (laughs) should give myself up for each and every one of you say you're a believer in Christ. That's what Paul teaches us. We always hear joy. Jesus, other yourself. How often do I live it? I live yaj. Or probably jujo. I'll put Jesus in front of you guys. No offense. That's not what Paul teaches us here. The gospel took hold of his life and affection came with it. But he also looks at these people and he looks at, man, what they've done through the Lord. They looks and he tells them, you have made me thankful. You have made me loving. You've made me affectionate. But he has one more emotion towards him. And to me, it's the one that hits me the hardest. He is expectant of this people. Read with me in verse 9. It says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure for what is blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. See, he says, look, I tell you, I pray for you. I tell you that whenever I pray for you, joy comes. And he says, this is my prayer. He's expectant of this. He's expectant that one, they grow in love. Verse 9, it says, And my prayer is that your love may abound more and more. I love the fact that he does not label this love. He says, you see my affection for you, and I want that affection to flow from me to you to everyone around you. But not only to everyone around you, but to God. He doesn't say, man, I expect your love for others to grow. He doesn't say, man, I expect your love to of God to grow. He says, I expect your love to grow, period. First John, it talks about, they will, know my disi- they will know that you are my disciples from the way you love one another. It also talks about that if, if you don't love, you don't know God because God is love. See, this is often misinterpreted and this is often taken out of context. But anything in the world is okay and that's not the truth. 
But what is the truth is that even in the darkest of worlds, even with people in the darkest of places and the wrongest of hearts, our love still must be growing. It must be expanding. It must overflow from us to others to the Lord. And we ought to be people, man, that grow in love. But not only do they grow in love, they grow in discernment. Read in verse 9 and again, it says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Here's what Paul says. He says, your love is going to grow, yes, but so is your knowledge and discernment. So that you may be able to prove what is excellent. Paul's calling these people to excellence. I don't know about you, but I had terrible teachers in college. Really mean teachers, and they said this. They said, pick the right answer. And I was like, that's easy. But then under that, they said, pick the most right answer. And I'm like, you are the worst type of person. <laughs> like, come on. Like, I live in a state. That's right. A is the right answer. I live in Louisiana. Now, B is more right. I'm just like, come on. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And teachers are the worst. Like, if there's a future teacher in this room, don't be that person. All right? That's, my, that's the only real point I had tonight. Don't be that guy. Um, sadly... This is what, I say sadly, this is going to be a weird transition. Sadly, this is what Paul is telling these people. He says, I don't want you to strive just for what is right. I want you to strive for what is excellent. He says, I want you to abound in discernment because I don't want you to be tiptoeing the line and saying, yeah, I can find this loophole and technically I'm not in the wrong here. I may be in a group of people that are in the wrong. I may be putting myself a little bit close to the wrong, but I myself am not in the wrong. That is not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, I want you to be excellent. I don't want you to choose the right decision. I want you to choose the best decision. We as Christians, whenever we get a hold of the gospel, we live in excellence. I'm not saying we do not falter. I'm not saying that we do not fail, but I'm saying that that's what we strive for. That love, knowledge, discernment overwhelms from us. Excellence is our standard. And we see that we can become pure and blameless on the day of Christ. We live our lives shooting for excellence. God looks at us one day and he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear with every fiber of my being whenever I meet the Lord. I don't want to hear, Braden, you were in this spot, and yeah, you were okay, but you could have done so much more. You could have been such a better light. You could have been such a better missionary. You could have been such a better heart. You should have been such a better tool for the gospel. But you chose decency, okayness, averageness, whenever you should have been striving for excellence. Whenever we get hold of the gospel, discernment grows and excellent is our goal. And then he tells them, I expect you to be filled with the fruit. I love this passage. It says, starting in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise to God. 
Paul here is no doubt referencing Jesus in John chapter 15. John 15, 5 says that I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in him, abides in me and I in him, he, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He's telling these guys in Philippi, you must abide in Christ. But he doesn't just say, I want you to be fruit bearers. He says, I want you to be filled with it. This is a picture of a tree at harvest whose, brim, whose brims, limbs, branches are weighed down because of the beauty and the mass of fruit that is on top of him. They look at that tree and they see a reap and a bounty. I read this from Kent Hughes. It says, a tree that bears fruit is alive. But a tree that is filled with fruit glorifies the gardener's care. Often I live my life simply just looking to bear fruit. To where that people look at me, they may have to look hard, they may have to look long, but they can see that's a fruit, that's a fruit. Yeah, he's alive. He's made alive in the Spirit. That does not bring praise to the Father's name. That does not glorify the gardener of who I am connected to. See, Jesus goes further and he says this in John 5, 8. He says, for whenever we are filled with fruit, that's whenever the Lord is praised. That's whenever the Lord gets the glory. Paul goes with it. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. Paul's entire being was meant to glorify God. See, I feel like this is what I do. I live my life, I roll through the motions, I live a Christianity, I live a $3 worth of the gospel. I let myself have enough love so that people like me. I let myself set myself enough apart so I don't put myself in bad situations, I guess. And I have fruit. So that you can look at me and say, man, Braden's a Christian. Paul expects so much more. The Lord expects so much more. He looks at this group of people and he says, the gospel, man, let it overtake you. Bring glory to the Father. Strive for a well done, my good and faithful servant. Be Christ's light on campus. Be the, the person that, man, is overflowing with love and joy, thankfulness. When are gonna, we going to stop living a life that is for ourselves and stop living a, start living a life that is gospel worthy? I think, honestly, we have to take a hard look and see, one, is our tree even alive? And two, ask ourselves, man, why are... Why are we not being weighed down for the fruit that the Lord is bringing through us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that Paul sets. Thank you for the words that you have given us. Thank you for Man, you're living in your holy word.
Lord God, I am sorry for the times that I have not proclaimed your name the way I should. I'm sorry for the times that I have not been the representative that I should. Lord God, forgive me. Pour your grace upon me. Lord God, change my heart. Father, I know that there's probably some students in this room that are like me. They've lived about $3 worth of the gospel their entire lives. And I think the saddest part of the thing is there's not, there's not a halfway, there's not a sure I'll take the rest later. Lord God, you're an all or nothing type of God. You're God that expects our trees to be overwhelmed with fruit. You're a God that expects our love to be overwhelmed with you and our focus to be solely on you, Lord God. You expect us to strive for excellence. And let us in this room who have not done that, let us repent tonight. Let us who have said we have done that, who have wanted the goodness of the gospel but not the transformation of the gospel, let them repent tonight, Lord God. Let them cry out to you, Father, that they want you to overwhelm them, to make life change happen in them. Though they may be in turmoil, though they may be in heartache, though they may be in a dark area where they feel like that cannot, and that cannot be done, let them rest in the fact that the Lord is going to begin a great work inside of them and that the Lord is not going to abandon us until the work is completed. Let that be my heart, that you are still completing the work inside of me. As the the band begins to pray, I just ask that you stay, man, you stay soft-hearted. Maybe for the first time in your life, you have decided to fully take the trueness of the gospel. Don't keep it in a box. Don't put a lid on it. Man, please accept it. Take the entire amount. Christian, maybe tonight you say, I have belittled the gospel and I have not been striving for excellence. Repent. Strive for Him. Strive after Him. Let's be a church that whenever we look back in 10 years, we can see the power and the movement that He has done through a group of believers.